Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Mark George, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at the Medical University of South Carolina, where he is director of the Brain Stimulation Laboratory. We'll be speaking with him about using TMS to probe causality in the human brain, how vagal nerve stimulation could be working to treat depression, and a little bit of entomology slash beekeeping. All this and more coming up. are here today with Mark George, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC, where he's director of the Brain Stimulation Laboratory. Thanks for speaking with us today, Professor George. Sure, glad to. My internet background research tells me that you did your undergraduate degree in philosophy. Um, could you maybe tell us what led you in that direction? And feel free to start your story with your earliest memories. Uh, what made you interested in the mind and brain? Well, I've always been interested in behavior and uh, the brain. I remember I was on a backpacking trip recently with a boyhood friend of mine, and he reminded me that I used to carry around Conrad Lorenz's books on backpacking trips. And, and, That's and, a lot to carry. And, and talk about you know bonding and uh, some of the imprinting, and so I've I've actually always been fascinated with it. And then when went to college and had an academic scholarship and really free reign, and so I let myself go where I wanted to. And I just I like philosophy. I like the rigor of logic. I like thinking uh, through critically. So I like that part of it. I loved uh, the philosophy of science and epistemology. How it is that we know what we know. Uh, the philosophy of uh, science and how science is done, and then mind and brain in those questions. I also was very interested in uh, moral philosophy. You know, how do we know what's right and just, and how do we decide that? And so, anyway, I just kind of got in philosophy in a big way, and all of those same questions are here today. Mm, and and you went to college in at Davidson College, is that correct? Yeah. In, in I don't remember which Carolina. Yeah, it's North Carolina. It's um, not far from here. North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, so that's really interesting because Lorenz was kind of a behavior guy. And how did you actually specifically, did you take a class in philosophy the first time and you just really liked it? Uh, I took a couple of classes and then it's a good way to begin one's thinking career, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I remember taking some philosophy class early on. It's really, it really is, like you say, a rigorous, a rigorous discipline, the way they make you write and the way they make you think. And so after that, you actually pursued a medical degree um, and then a residency at where you are now, MUSC in South Carolina. So, you know, the jump from philosophy to medicine might not seem immediate to a lot of people since you were more interested, you know, maybe in philosophy of science or philosophy of epistemology. So how did you decide to pursue medicine? Um, and did you enjoy practicing medicine? I actually kind of went into medicine thinking that I was going to do kind of mission medicine, like uh, Doctors Without Borders, you know, going to exotic places and doing good and I spent uh, some time in med- some time in med- Haiti and got really disenchanted about the scope of the problems and how little one doctor could do and so then I came back and I said well if that's not the kind of doctor I want to be what do I want to be and I said well I'll turn my my hobby into my job that is my fascination with uh, the brain and behavior into what I do and so what are the uh, disciplines that deal with the uh, the mind and brain, and unfortunately, we have two. There's both uh, psychiatry and neurology, and both of them kind of give uh, different views of the proper reality. I think, and I could not f- choose between the two of them, so I just did both. And so I did residencies in both. And um, to this day, there's an unfortunate split, uh, which makes no sense except historically. 
yeah, they're pretty different disciplines, right, for doctors. I mean, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not totally aware, but I've heard that they're, they're both, you know, in terms of practice and, and, and the knowledge that, that is in the field for each of these. No, they're not different at all. They all come, come really? down to one organ, the same organ. And in nowhere else in medicine do we have two different groups. We don't have two different types of cardiologists or liver doctors. It just makes no sense that we have two different groups of brain doctors. Yeah. It's just a misconception maybe of history or something? Yeah, like no, that? it's historical. Because psychiatry got uh, derailed by Freud for so many years and really ignored the, the brain as an organ... Neurology kept kept that, and uh, psychiatry has now come back to that, but there's still two different disciplines, which is unfortunate. You did this multitasking during your residency, and then when that was over, you flew off to London for a fellowship, which is where I believe you first encountered a modern transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, machine in a hospital. First explain for us what TMS is, and if that was what you were thinking of researching when you started. Okay, so as you start to learn about the brain and what we know, you uh, clinically, then and now, you quickly run up to the edge. There is so much that we don't know, about which we have no uh, evidence base for anything. And so I started getting kind of infected with the idea of doing research during my residencies, where you're just astounded that no one knows the answer to this question, and they're so simple. And so you started doing that. And I decided that I really would like to be a researcher, and I got fascinated by imaging the brain. And back then, brain imaging was just getting started, and there were only a few places in the world that you could do good brain imaging with the technology. This was in 1989-90, and there were a few places that were doing PET scanning, and, and one of those was in London. And so I decided to go and learn about brain imaging in London. And while I was there learning about brain imaging in, in one of the uh, labs near where I was working, they had an experimental transcranial magnetic stimulation device. So TMS is a device where you take a powerful electromagnet and create a magnetic field that's very powerful but very brief. And the magnetic field uh, passes unimpeded through the skull. And so it allows you to actually non-invasively in an awake, alert human being stimulate the, su the surface of the brain powerful enough to cause it to, to depolarize. And it had been invented in... Sheffield, England in 1985, so about four years before I went over there, and one of the few places in the world that had these devices was right there next to where I was, so I was really lucky that I just kind of actually literally kind of stumbled uh, next door or actually the floor above and encountered TMS, and at that very first encounter, I, I was doing brain imaging, and we were getting wonderful pictures of the brain basis of emotion and mood regulation, and it was all very exciting, but maybe it's the philosopher in me. I was still, I didn't know what was causal. So I saw an area of the brain that would uh, have more sugar usage during a behavior. And is that part of the brain then causing the behavior? Is that part of the brain reacting to the behavior? Or have I designed my study wrong and is it just incidental? And so brain imaging is normally correlative. It's, it's temporally correlative and it's not it's hard to get at causality, but with brain stimulation and TMS, you could get in and actually stimulate that part of the brain and see if you could knock in or knock out a behavior. And if you can do that, then you would have much better causal information about a part of the brain and how it related to a behavior. So I said back then that TMS would be a wonderful research tool for getting closer to causality in terms of brain behavior. So anyway, that's, that's what happened then. And th then I, I was there for just a year, and then I went to the NIH in Washington, uh, where I, I did an extended uh, second research fellowship. 
And uh, again, starting with brain imaging, PET, and then moving later to MRI. But I've, I quickly found out that there was somebody at the NIH, a guy named Mark Hallett, who also had a TMS machine. And so I went to him and I said, look, I'm interested in <clears throat> mood regulation and emotion, and I think depression lives in this circuit in the brain, and I would like to apply TMS to that circuit in depressed patients and see if I can get them undepressed. And he looked at me like I was a bit crazy, uh, but he was <laughs> open-minded. He's a very good scientist, and he said, well, it's yeah. reasonable. You have an idea, a hypothesis, a way to test it. And so he allowed me to, to move forward, and, and so he did the very early studies there. Of our audience of this podcast, I think, are people that are being trained in the basic scientist science where we're working on animal models, and we do have a lot of tools for manipulation and experiment. And we often, because you know, so much of the human literature is flooded with, you know, I mean, very good data, I'm sure, but but you know, a lot of correlational data. Um, it's really interesting to hear that your original interest in TMS was not actually therapeutic, but it was actually more like your your interest in being able to to test directly by you know cause uh, by by removal or a stimulation. Uh, what you could do in a human, but you know, of course, that's challenging. So, without a technique that's non-invasive, um, that's not possible. And it sounds like you saw that. In yeah, humans. brain imaging alone is insufficient. It's purely correlational, and it's very hard to get beyond that. And and the brain stimulation devices coupled with imaging allow mm. allow another step. I mean, we still in science we always struggle with ultimate causality, but we, it, it allows right. it, it allows sure. us to get a, a farther step along. Yeah. Do many people use TMS and who are interested in human neuroscience these days, or is it becoming more common since when you first started and was considered crazy? Oh, no. It's, 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 it was rapidly initially taken up by a group of uh, neurophysiologists. So uh, beginning you know, in the 1900s when people discovered electricity, people had used electrical stimulation of brain to understand motor system. And so you could see how long it took for a signal to go from the cortex to the muscles and you could figure out whether it's the problems in the muscles or the spinal cord or in the brain. So more motor neurophysiologists um, adopted TMS quite quickly and that was what th th that those were the researchers who had the devices at um, at Queen Square and at the NIH, the motor neurophysiologists. And they still do very sophisticated work with TMS and other brain stimulation in motor cortex. The rest of neuroscience has has now picked up uh, brain stimulation considered broadly in a massive way. And TMS is one of the tools that's mm -hmm. being used either in a knock-in or knock-out research way or sure. what people are now calling neuromodulation or plasticity uh, studies. And then there's mm -hmm. TDCS and uh, there's, there's a whole host of other brain stimulation technologies. And I think it's really good that the, these technologies allow a bridge between human work, direct human work, and animal work. Uh, that is... Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. It's what science right. needs. Right. And I see other people going the opposite direction these days with optogenetics, maybe, uh, which is interesting. Another thing, just to give TMS machine, like these days, I don't know, maybe you could compare it to the first machine you saw. What does it look like? I mean, how big is it? What is the readout for physicians? I mean, how, and you also mentioned it's very targeted. So how, 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 what is the smallest unit you can target, quote unquote, with this? Well, TMS a modern machine? TMS machine really consists of an electromagnetic coil about the size of your hand that you put on the cortex, and it will it'll stimulate um, an area of cortex like a, a thimbleful. I don't know whether you would want to call that focal or not. It, it's focal by huge standards. It's massively non-focal by single-cell recording standards. But it will stimulate that kind of uh, size of tissue, but really just on the surface of the brain. We can't go 
much below superficial cortex in humans. The, the battery pack that that supplies that looks like a couple of desktop computers. So it's not huge and they cost about $50,000. So they're not, not too terribly expensive, but uh, more than, you know, everybody can have one on their desk. The real questions are with TMS, could we actually stimulate deeper? And there are some coils uh, out of Israel that, that can stimulate deeper in the brain. But unfortunately, we've discovered a, a trade-off that if with TMS, if you want to go deeper in the brain, you lose focality. So you can go deep but non-focal. So you can, uh, it's like, I think of it like if you're playing golf and you're trying to hit a golf ball out of the sand trap, you can get the golf ball, but you've got to take sand out on either side. Uh, and with TMS, if you want to go deep, you have to get brain tissue all around it. Now, there are a lot of clever people who, have, who still think that we might be able to have the holy grail where we could go actually both deep and focal. And that may happen uh, soon, but right now we don't, we don't yet have that. So uh, we're, inter- we're somewhat limited to stimulation cortically. Luckily, uh, the human cortex is organized in this way that all of cortex is part of these cortical, subcortical loops. And so whenever you uh, tickle the cortex, you secondarily then activate other circuits. And so with the, the idea that we first inter- interact with cortex, we can then secondarily uh, send signals to deeper regions. And obviously, as an emotion and mood researcher, I'm very interested in cortical limbic uh, regulation. And it's very it's very obvious that we can do that. When we stimulate cortically with TMS, we are secondarily causing changes in other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. So almost using the cor- cortex as a handle in order to, I mean, because the brain is connected, you know, just by stimulating the cortex doesn't mean you're only stimulating the cortex. You're activating circuits is the idea here. That's interesting. And yeah, it kind of relates to a lot of basic research trying to trace circuits, but now in, you know, in a very human context, I guess. Um, I do want to talk definitely about um, the use of TMS for depression. And so, you know, this is something that you worked on for a very long time. As you, as you mentioned, you started this work at the NIH like 20 years or so, you know, under um, obviously some very great mentorship. Um, as you've given Robert Post um, this credit. Use of TMS has actually been approved a while ago now, in 2008, for depression. But can you tell us a little bit about the efficacy of, of this treatment compared to other current treatments for depression? I know depression is something we don't know a lot about or understand quite in neuroscience, or maybe um, you, can, you can beg to differ. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so TMS is FDA-approved now after a long, 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 very long uh, series of years yeah. <laughs> um, where... We translated an idea of interacting with a regulating circuit and showed very early, small, weak effects, and then over time, gradually, we were able to increase our, our dose, understand better where we targeted, understand a bit about the role of frequency and um, plasticity, and selecting proper patients. And with all of that, mm-hmm. and each of those small things I just said took years, we were able to then do a multi-site um, industry-sponsored trial that got FDA mm-hmm. approval in 2008. I then did a NIH trial, uh, industry-independent, that completed shortly after that. Mm-hmm. That was also positive. So we have what we call in clinical world uh, positive class 1 evidence that is a large mm-hmm. multi-site um, randomized controlled trial showing that if you take patients mm-hmm. who've tried and failed at least two antidepressants, so they're treatment-resistant, Mm-hmm. Uh, that you will get about 15% of them remitted. Their depression will totally mm-hmm. go away with the active uh, device, and 5% will go away with sham. So 
uh, threefold increase of efficacy with the real compared to sham and statistically significant. It's a little disappointing because that's, you know, that's a small number, 15%. When we, when we give it in an open label trial, we get 30%, which is better. Well, that, means, that means we give it to people and we say we're giving you uh, TMS. I see. So no placebo, basically, or basically, you, you allow placebo Correct. effect and then to we happen. Get, but that's what happens right. in the real world. Right. We get thirty percent anyway, remission probably. in the industry. I mean, in, in our trial, mm-hmm. in our academic trial, it's now gone out to market, and people get treated. We we did that off of medications. Uh, now people typically get TMS staying on the medicines that aren't getting them totally well, but at least are doing some good. And this the data from those studies uh, show about. About 60% response, that means there's, their symptoms are cut in half and, and about 30% remission. So about one-third of these people who've tried and failed two medications, we get their, get, get, give them their life back, which is that's pretty good, pretty good deal. That's pretty so that's good. great. The, the, the bad news is, is that there's a third who get no effect. <laughs> and, the, and, then, uh, and the really bad news is, um, although it's a new uh, paradigm-shifting treatment with no side effects and uh, is a very direct way, I think it's the model of the future of how right. we interact with brain, it has really had a very slow uptake in the United States. There yeah. are only 700 machines. It's, it's now insurance reimbursed by almost over half of the insurance carriers, but it's really not reached a big use in the uh, population yet. And it may, may, may take time. There was another discovery a while back where uh, with deep brain stimulation where you can stick a wire in the brain and if you stick a wire in the brain into the uh, subthalamic nucleus in someone with Parkinson's disease you can almost immediately make their tremor go away so a very big effect right. and it's taken on that's been well, it's, it's taken 20 yeah. years and so mm-hmm. it makes me that it's um yeah. that it's going to take some more mm-hmm. time for people's practice patterns and industry to change mm. And you and you say United States is is it that this has been more popular elsewhere? I mean, you said you saw the first machine in England. Oh yeah, no, it's all over the world. I, I just I just know the U.S. Yeah. and the U.S. is the biggest clinical market. The statistics. Market. So, I see. So anyway, it's it's been it's a great success story yeah. of a science idea mm-hmm. over time, translated yeah. into a new treatment that's helping people. But you know, I'm not satisfied. There's it's all this yeah. other stuff. Could we? It's inefficient. People have to come in, sit in a chair for about thirty minutes sure. every day for. Retention might be hard, for, right? For four weeks. Well, no, these people are desperate. No? We have over mm-hmm. 90% retention in trials. People, wow. It, okay. So that's not mm-hmm. the problem. It's just the what mm-hmm. I call the schlep factor. People have to come in and sit in a chair. And so I've been wondering whether we could bake the cake faster. That is, do we have to wait every day for a treatment? Can we do, in fact, four or five treatments in, in a day and kind of speed things up? And the data look like there is a dose effect, and dose being considered the number of TMS pulses, the stimuli, and it does, and calendar doesn't matter. So that you could, you can cram all of that TMS into a couple of days and get the same effect as if, as as what's FDA approved, where people have to come for four weeks, which is kind of interesting from a neuroscience uh, perspective. Right. Is whatever we're doing in the brain in terms of triggering um, cascades, there isn't necessarily a huge off time that requires sleep in between. It's it's really good for clinical care because. A lot of people live far from a doctor, and that way, instead of coming once a day, they can come uh, in a more creative uh, delivery model. So, uh, so I'm looking at different ways. Uh, how do we, you know, in those 30% who don't get better, are we just missing the target? So, uh, is there a part of their cortex that we're not stimulating? Is it, you know, how would we find that out? Yeah. Would we put them in a scanner and have them do a task? Yeah. And 
or or do they have a different kind of disease? Sure, it's, it's, sure. So we're looking at those people who don't don't respond. Yeah. I mean, that was a big question I had was, you know, is the reason why there's still that 30%, does that have to do with heterogeneity in the disease, whether it's on a circuit level or, um, you know, just maybe that's one hypothesis, circuit level or genetic level even. It doesn't really matter, but but do you think everybody who has depression, you know, there is variability in the diagnosis. Do you think there's actually a neural basis for this kind of variability? Yes, I think so. I, the, way I, the reason I say that mm-hmm. is um, I, mm-hmm. I, called the, I called it, when I'm thinking critically, uh, I call depression mm-hmm. the depressions, like we call pneumonia the pneumonias. Mm-hmm. And we know that if you just huh. look at pneumonia, an infection in the lungs now, they used to call every infection in the lungs pneumonia around the turn of the last century. And then, then they would parse it out by whether it was um, productive or not productive, what that meant, whether you coughed up stuff or not. And then whether the cough was huh. green pneumonia or brown pneumonia. And, and <laughs> this is what they were trying yeah. to do before they figured out causative agents, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of pneumococcus and th- some things. And so they began to parse out the pneumonias. And so now we now know that every lung infection has a different etiology and you need to know that in terms of figuring out prognosis and how to treat it. And I think that's kind of where we're starting now with the depressions, that there probably is a whole basket of things that have the common uh, phenotype that we're seeing and different disorders. And so the fact that a third of the patients that we give TMS to don't get better I think they actually have a different form of disease that's not susceptible uh, to, to the circuit-level modulation with TMS. The reason I say that is when people don't respond to TMS, we then give them our next, our most powerful treatment called electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, and that works in about 60% of patients. But a lot of our TMS non-responders also don't respond to ECT, so I think we're actually picking out with these clinical trials, a group of people, unfortunately, who have a really, really bad illness, like with cancer, you know, a very high-grade cancer that doesn't respond to uh, medications. But in terms of what are we doing now, we're trying to figure out how to make it more effective, why it is that it doesn't work in some people, whether we can experiment around with delivery models. I like the cancer analogy because that is that is an area in which it seemed like, um, you know, uh, sub, you know, dividing up the disease by subpopulations has been a way to target the disease, and maybe this might be the. You'd want to know because, right? If you're one of these people with a really, really bad disease, why waste the time in this clinical trial? Right. It's not going right. to work, and you'd go straight right. for something towards the end, which mm. they've been able to do with cancer, and I think they've been able to do it with cancer because they have friggin' biomarkers. They can analyze mm-hmm. things and look at them and see disease progress and prognosis and. We've been so struggling with uh, brain diseases, but with brain imaging now and some other uh, ways of getting in, we're starting to get a little bit better as well. That might be, I'm wondering if that might actually be an animal model issue because, you know, with cancer, we understood that there were some genetics and you can create models. Maybe not. I don't know. It all depends. But in this case, you know, with behavior and and something like depression, it might be hard to model it first and understand mechanisms that could divide the subpopulation. So maybe these, you know, I guess we're left to human studies a little bit. I don't know. I do, I think. I mean, there are some good animal models of depression, and they can give us some information. But ultimately, I think most human depression is uh, is a dysfunction of our prefrontal cortex. And as you know, prefrontal cortex is uniquely human, and so it's really hard to, to go into even other primate models and get a real good similarity. Yeah. This treatment for depression is, I guess, cortical, right, because of the TMS is targeting uh-huh. the cortex. You also have on your plate vagal nerve stimulation. So this has been something that's been used for epilepsy before and also now um, since 2005 or six or so, um, also been used for depression. 
And I'm really curious about this because vagus, the vagus nerve is, I understand, a cranial nerve, if I can bring back my neuroanatomy. And the cell body of the vagus nerve is actually in the brain stem or in the base of the brain, that area that you were saying TMS can't really directly target, but you, you, you said was uh, indirectly targeting. And I'm just wondering, so, you know, with your TMS studies, that's, you know, in part it's about patient care, but in part it's actually helping you understand the disease. With these vagus nerve treatments, does does the fact that you know you're, you're targeting these vagus nerves that actually control things like the parasympathetic system, the heart digestive tract, does that tell you anything about depression? Or um, maybe you can give me some. Oh, well, these are great questions yeah. and much longer yeah. than our podcast can go. Um, <laughs> yeah, but okay. I, but I do sure. think that w- that we can both go top down uh, with TMS and other approaches and bottom up mm-hmm. with uh, vagus stimulation, and we can mm-hmm. then ultimately get to these same uh, mood regulating circuits. So Mm -hmm. I I got interested in uh, VNS for treating depression. A Mm -hmm. lot of the epilepsy patients who were being treated uh, got a mood improvement. About half of epilepsy patients have a depression. And so the device seemed to be getting them undepressed. And the company came to me and said, well, what about using this thing straight up for depression? And I said, well, Mm -hmm. uh, show me where it goes in the brain. And they showed Mm -hmm. me a map of the orbitofrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, cingulate gyrus, hippocampus, insula. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's the mood-regulating circuit. Uh, uh, you know, so your device is obviously going there. Um, are people jumping off the bridge or are they smiling? And they said, mm-hmm. oh, we don't, have, we don't have any reports of people getting worse in terms of depression and all better. And so I said, well, let's, let's do some trials. And so, again, based on some imaging and circuit ideas, uh, we then launched into clinical trials. And we find with VNS... Mm-hmm. that a signal goes through the um, nucleus uh, solitary tract, NTS, and then goes up to um, norepinephrine uh, locus ceruleus areas and then up to prefrontal cortex. And uh, mm-hmm. with stimulation daily for several weeks to months, we can get people undepressed, and they do well for years. I have some patients mm-hmm. who have been stimulated with vagal nerve stimulator implants for over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. They do remarkably well. Mm-hmm. So, so that is another area. That got FDA approved. But the company did not do the randomized controlled trial that was needed to get industry to pay. And it cost about $30,000 to put one of the devices in. And so we have an FDA-approved treatment, but there's really no uh, market in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in actually stimulating the vagus non-invasively. And you can do that two ways. You can go with a TMS-like device over the neck, over the vagus in the neck, and stimulate the vagus that way. Mm -hmm. Or there's there's a... cutaneous branch of the vagus that's actually in the ear, the auricular branch. Huh. And uh, we're, we, have, we are building devices where we can stimulate that uh-huh. and potentially get vagus um, nerve stimulation effects. And uh, I, if, if, that's posit- if those studies are positive, that we can really break the, yeah. the monopoly of um, some of the vagus nerve stimulating companies and have a cheap non-invasive device that sure. might be able to for patients. Oh, that sounds like a fascinating, fascinating area with lots of potential. People will have to ask you more um, when you come. Yeah, visit. I'm keen on Vegas. Uh, the, yeah, the, actually, a, a Vegas nerve stimulator where they go into the Vegas fibers coming right out of the stomach has just been approved for the treatment of morbid obesity. That's crazy. Yeah, no, because you have it, access to so many different areas. Well, those those fibers are just satiety fibers, and so uh, that yeah, makes I makes see. real sense. Um, but I think I Vegas is going to be a real important new area if and um there's massive basic science work where if you have a vagus stimulator in and on and you do a rat model of stroke your ischemia is less with the vagus your heart if you do a heart attack your 
your heart your heart um, ischemia is less. You can stop septic shock in animals with vagus stimulation. You can you can actually stop um, anaphylaxis with vagus. It's really interesting uh, that with that kind of rhythmic input, you can change and modify substantially a bunch of diseases. That's fascinating. Oh, I wish we could talk more about that, but I, I want to hit a couple more points. You've done a lot of work with all kinds of stimulation, as we've talked about. Um, you also, you know, continue to do this fMRI work. Um, so one of the one piece of recent work that I want to touch on is you've been looking at ways to reduce nicotine craving, um, which I think of as basically addiction, by real time feedback fMRI. You know. Um, I guess both to investigate the ba- basic uh, neural correlates of nicotine craving and also to actually have it used as a therapy. Can you tell us very quickly how this work started? Um, and if you think TMS one day could be used to reduce nicotine Okay, cravings. well, the TMS part is a separate question, but uh, the real, real-time real uh, fMRI feedback sure. actually got started there in, uh, 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 not started, but at least catapulted in, uh, in Palo Alto by a guy named Descharms, who did some of the very early work mm-hmm. uh, showing mm-hmm. that you could in the scanner, actually look, show regional activity, analyze the data quickly, and then feed it back to the person in the scanner and ask them to modify it. So there was a, a big excitement about whether we could use mm-hmm. the scanner as a biofeedback tool and have people learn how to do uh, lots of things. And unfortunately, a lot of the initial uh, enthusiasm, the trials didn't really replicate or do, do well, but we did a very uh, systematic look at whether we could actually induce nicotine craving in the scanner and people trying to quit uh, by showing them cigarette cues and when they got an area that was craved we would have them try to decrease the brain activity in that region and we, sh- we showed that they could actually and that that's, that, that training uh, translated into a, a psychophysiology lab across campus so it, it had durability beyond the moment of the scanner. Now, whether that would ever be useful uh, clinically, I don't think so. I mean, you know, scanners are expensive. It took a lot of time in the scanner to do it. But it's a really interesting idea that we might at some point be able to uh, do real-time brain analysis and feed that back to people and then let them somehow magically figure out how to change their own circuit uh, based on that signal. Um, now, in terms of whether TMS can treat uh, nicotine, uh, there are a bunch of studies where we go uh, prefrontally, uh, while people are craving, and see if we can knock down their craving. And we've done this in alcohol and cigarettes, and now we're doing it in cocaine. And the answer is we can acutely, you know, over 20 minutes, modify people's craving and knock it down, which is exciting. I mean, that's kind of a neat, a neat parlor trick. What we don't know, we don't know yet, is whether doing that in a lab setting where we are making people crave will translate into a real-world reduction in use and. Uh, Xing uh, Bao Li and Colleen Han and some people working in our group here are doing those kind of next step clinical trials where we do it not just one day but we do it for three weeks in a row and see whether we can get um, effects. Uh, so, so I would say stay tuned. It, it's a great idea. We know the circuitry. We know how to modify it. We've got some positive uh, data now that make it uh, look promising and we just have to do the hard clinical trial work uh, next to see. There's one industry partner, a, guy, a company named Brainsway, who are actually doing an international multi-site trial of their form of TMS to try to cause smoking reduction. And that study is about halfway through. And if that is positive, uh, they would get FDA approval to use TMS to stop smoking. Oh, that would be a big deal.
It's interesting because I, I guess translation from like just acute reduction of craving into like uh, lasting would be some, you would have to assume there'd be some kind of plasticity in the frontal cortex and also that that plasticity is in the correct direction, which is all, I guess. Oh yeah, no kidding. Uh, but, we, but we're obviously producing yeah, something yeah. that's durable uh, in, in treating for yeah. depression that yeah. lasts beyond the, the last day of yeah. the treatment. So the, I, and when I began using mm. TMS, people said, no, no, you can show an immediate effect, but nothing that, that lasts. And, uh, it's it's obvious that you can uh, yeah. shift the brain into areas, and, and so what are we actually doing with TMS? That's the yeah. big question. Yeah. And and you know I think that what we do when we stimulate the cortex and make your thumb wiggle, mm-hmm. or we stimulate a circuit, it's just like you're you're moving your thumb. I mean we've shown that in the imaging studies that mm-hmm. a TMS induced movement of your thumb has the same metabolic. Uh, demands as when you voluntarily move your thumb in the same circuit. It's, it's mm-hmm. just the same as volitional movement. And so I think actually when we stimulate your prefrontal cortex 3,000 times in 20 minutes, it's like going to the gym. And what, hap- <laughs> what happens when you've gone to the gym every day? You've, you've induced learning and you've uh, changed um, muscle memory and circuit memory. So I yeah. think we're actually inducing learning in a different way in terms of synaptic reorganization and so conceptually i think that's what we're doing with tms and so if that's true we should be able to make people learn to crave less uh, okay uh, and and it might be a treatment there it's in terms of learning we're yeah. also pursuing it in terms of stroke recovery and that is mm-hmm. an area of immense promise where we we kind of know exactly where we want to go right and uh we pair the tms with other forms of um Rehab, classical rehab, where we have people trying to move. Right, and do some kind of uh, recovery. Yeah. I wish we could talk more, but I want to move forward, uh, and I want to just kind of step back a little bit and and think about, like, the time scale of these kinds of studies, just because you're one of the more um, unique speakers in this year's seminar series. Uh, typically, we have a lot of basic science, um, you know, circuit molecular people, not that many clinicians, and also you're very unique, um, therefore, um, for our podcast because of your clinical background. I mean, you're still doing very basic, curiosity-driven, uh, a- asking those kind of questions or thinking about those kind of questions, but obviously you're very much thinking about the patients, too. And you've worked a really long time. You've, you've you know, saw a treatment go through a very long process to finally become something that's FDA-approved and used in the clinic. And I just want to ask, can you comment on on the time scale and like the kind of patience or maybe what, what kept you going for so many years on the, on these questions. I, I just, you know, it's something wanting to know the motivation for something to make something well, really work. You know, you could, you could say it's stubbornness. You could say it's, uh, it's <laughs> compassion for patients. I don't know. It's a combination. Um, I, I really, really right. enjoy uh, science. I just love asking yeah. questions. And then that joy when you, when you realize that you've kind of done something and then you open the data set and you, you discover a new thing, that is just, you know, that's to all the scientists out there. You, anybody who has mm. had that knows what I'm talking about. Those who haven't, I do hope that all of you get those feelings because they, they, they're, they're rare, uh, but when they happen, they are, they are addicting, actually. And, and if you can then do that in something that you can trace a line from there to something that helps people, uh, uh, that's just, that's a, what a gift. I mean, I'm the luckiest man in the world to be able <laughs> to do that kinds of things. Another way would say that I'm lazy. So as, as, as a clinician, <laughs> I know that I can see, you know, 20 people in a day and I might be able to get them better. However, if I can come up with yeah. a treatment that actually then can get some people better, then there's a multiplier. And so I can actually go sit on the beach or go kite surfing and, and know that my treatment <laughs> is out there 
you know, getting people better. And so, you know, participating in discovery science really does have that potential for a multiplier, which if you're trying to figure out how to maximize good work on in your time on the planet, uh, it's a it's a great you know, it's a gamble, but you might yeah. get lucky, and I've been very yeah. lucky. It's, it's yes, obviously um, contributed a lot to to people's lives. All right, so we usually, um, so I have two more parts. Uh, so first, can you give us a brief preview of your upcoming talk, which I hope will include some of your more recent work? Yeah, well, I can. You know, the talk will be a little bit of this, mm-hmm. a little bit of history, but but I think I think fundamentally, uh, in terms of brain stimulation, we're bumping up against a series of questions about how do you actually intelligently interact with something mm-hmm. as complex as the human brain when you have a bit of electricity coming in uh, and you and you know that electricity is the currency of the brain it's how the brain uh, gets things done it's how it communicates information and so you're coming in externally and I think we're bumping up against a, a knowledge of how you mm-hmm. actually do that intelligently and and we haven't been doing it very intelligently um, before and so the things that I think uh, make it more intelligent than not is the actual rhythm of stimulation. So, so you know, we do 10 hertz mm-hmm. stimulation for the FDA-approved treatment for um, TMS. But mm-hmm. wh- where do we get 10 from? It, it's, it's, not, it's because of our digits, it's actually. I mean, we tried 20, mm-hmm. we tried 1, we tried 5. We settled on 10, but there's no good reason why mm-hmm. we do 10 hertz stimulation. If, however, we, we say, how does the brain communicate mm-hmm. uh, with itself, and we just listen to the brain, you know, each, each, each neuron, each sets of neurons have different firing frequencies, but one of the more common ways that neurons talk to each other is a thing called Thetaverse. And right. so, so people have now said, well, why don't, why don't we talk to the brain um, using its language? You know, instead of talking mm-hmm. Russian to a French person, why don't we speak mm-hmm. French? And so people mm-hmm. are starting to do Thetaverse into the brain. And then mm-hmm. they're uh, us- using uh, yeah. Hebbian concepts of saying, right. well, how do we know which circuit to get to? Well, maybe we should make that circuit active and then it will stand out. It will be more susceptible to whatever's going on and, we, and more easily modifiable. So people are, be- are rediscovering Heb and the idea that stimulation should be combined intelligently with behavioral activation and that you can get much more if you, if you don't just stimulate dumbly, but you stimulate uh, mm-hmm. with uh, behavior that's sculpted. And then and then, um, yeah, so anyway, it's about how to do it intelligently, and, and we haven't been doing it very intelligent today. And, and, <laughs> I'm, and I'm one of the biggest yeah, uh, committers of that sin. But, you know, we had to start somehow. <laughs> yeah, of course, right. I, I'm just smiling because I'm actually um, work very close to with a LTP lab where we use, you know, we call theta stimulation in, like, animal models to get potentiation. So, you know, hearing this from a clinical perspective, like still taking into account all of these things, I think this is going to be a great talk, great interaction of um, clinical and also very basic uh, interests. Or we like to end at NeuroTalk with um, three what we call rapid-fire questions. So these should be fun, and I just want you to answer with whatever comes off the top of your head. Um, so the first question is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Mark, George, as a medical student, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, or as an early career? Oh, researcher? yeah. Well, don't give up. Not that I did. Uh, and, and don't underdose. <laughs> and I think we did that in TMS. We, uh, we were too timid ah. in terms of a lot of the first steps. And if I could go back, I would say, you know, put your foot on the gas in terms of dose. Uh, yeah. I see, I see. Okay. 
You've also spent a lot of time in the Carolinas, in North Carolina for college, as we talked about, um, and then you did your MD and, and, um, and a residency, and now you've had your lab for 21 years um, over, uh, over there. Can you suggest to our audience any hidden treasures or highlights they should hit if they ever come to the area? <laughs> oh, Charleston is a gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the restaurants mm-hmm. down here are great. I live out on a barrier island called Sullivan's Island, and the beach there is, is to die for. Um, mm-hmm. So the beach there mm-hmm. and the restaurants are are great. Mm. Have you ever been out? Oh, yes. Place? That's where I learned to kite. Yeah, so it's yeah. very good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. I, I, I lived in D.C., and I, I really loved it there. All right. And then the last thing. So uh, if you could pick one other topic, not philosophy, um, it could be science or non-science, uh, to study, oh, what would you I'm, I'm a beekeeper, and I... Uh, Mm-hmm. I love E.O. Wilson's work on insect society. Yes. yes. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, a, a parallel, almost as good a life would be for me to get more into bees than insects. Yeah, like ethology. I actually, I remember the reason why I got into science was um, there's this book he wrote, Consilience, and I just thought it was so fascinating. Oh, he there you go. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful book. Yeah. All right. Well, great. This was a wonderful interview, um, and we really look forward to seeing you here at Stanford. I look forward to it. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when my co-hosts, David and Sharon, will interview Tianyi Mao, assistant scientist with the Volum Institute at Oregon Health and Science University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Tiam, Eddie Avron, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, Eddie Yu. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Ada Yee.